Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster, and this season's theme is women trapped in towers and the assholes who sent them there. And this week's subject is Sophia Dorothea of Selle, which is a place in modern day Germany. And I had never, ever, ever heard about her until this past, I think, February. I just kind of asked on Instagram for some suggestions of who might be interesting topics for future podcasts. And this was, this woman was suggested, and I just went through all my messages, and I can't find who the person was who suggested it, because I know I've corresponded with this person a few other times about Sophia Dorothy of Sella. So if it was you, shout out and thank you so much, because I found her story so interesting, Sophia Dorothea. And then I kind of retrofitted the rest of the season just around wanting to talk about her. So I thought like, well, I want to do a thing about Sophia Dorothea. But I always like to go in chronological order. So I found some other women who fit the same theme of women trapped in towers. And But it was really Sophia Dorothea, or as I refer to her in my notes, SD, is truly the muse for this whole season. So, and this is also hopping over. There are going to be connections to British history because everything seems to kind of tie back to there on this podcast. But also we're going to be looking at an area of what we now consider Germany. But back then, like all these other places, it was a whole bunch of little kingdoms and stuff with their own royalty. And I don't super know a lot about the history of Germany. So there's going to be some stuff here that I will make my best guesses about to explain them to you. So my main source for this, so part of the thing was, I was like, oh my God, what an interesting story. Like I just read some online stuff about her. And I'm like, oh, wouldst that only there were a biography. And then guess what was just published? A biography called The Imprisoned Princess, The Scandalous Life of Sophia Dorothea of Sella by Catherine Curzon. I've got a link to that in the show notes because it's, I was, the timing was perfect. Like the existence of this book, just when I wanted to read more. So that's a mega source for this podcast, as well as some online articles that I found as per always. Uh, Wikipedia, as well as an article on RebeccaStarBrown.com, The Extraordinary Case of George I's Wife, Sophia Dorothea of Sella. Um, the biography of Sophia Dorothea from EnglishMonarch.co.uk. An article about Sophia Dorothea from TheHistoryBuff.org. And then Catherine Curzon, who wrote the biography, also wrote an article for HistoryAnswers.co.uk. Um, I'll read you the, I don't, I can't read you the title of the article because it'll sort of spoil what's going to come, but just know it's a great title of the article. Maybe I'll say it at the end. And then an article on juliaherdman.com, Princess Sophia Dorothea, the uncrowned queen of Britain. And I'm just going to go through a little bit of names because as per always, there are several repeated names. And so to try to make this podcast be least confusing possible, I'm going to, I'm going to say the names a bit differently from how they usually went. 
So our heroine is Sophia Dorothea of Sella, which is spelled C-E-L-L-E. And I'm just going to call her SD because in my notes, I just started calling her SD and I think of her as SD. And the thing is, there's another Sophia in the story who is Sophia of Hanover. So that is the, her aunt, SD's aunt by marriage. So Sophia of Hanover, we're going to call Sophia of Hanover. She is the daughter of Elizabeth Stewart, granddaughter of James I slash sixth and great granddaughter of Mary Queen of Scots. Her husband is called Ernest Augustus. We're going to call him by both of his names. SD's father is George. There's a lot of Georges in the story. So her father, we're going to call first name, middle name, George William. And then her son, or sorry, her husband is George Lewis. So effectively, SD is our heroine. Sophia of Hanover is her aunt. Her father is George William. Her husband is George Lewis. And here we go. So SD was born on September 15th, 1666. Her parents were George William, the Duke of Brunswick Lüneburg, and his non-married partner, Eleanor Desmir d'Olbreuse, who was a French noblewoman and also a Huguenot. Eleanor and George William met in 1664, so two years before Estie was born. George William immediately fell in love with her, and so she decided to move permanently to Germany. She was given the title Lady of Harbourg, and Sophie Estie, born two years later, was their first and only child. George William and Eleanor entered into what is called a morganatic marriage, which means, I think, ugh, I looked it up, but effectively they weren't married, but they were committed to each other, but they couldn't get married for reasons I'm going to explain. So this meant that SD was purposely left illegitimate because George William became the Duke of Brunswick-Lüneburg when his older brother died, and then he was pressured to marry Sophia of Hanover the daughter of Elizabeth Stewart, granddaughter of James I, great-granddaughter of Mary Queen of Scots. But he didn't want to marry Sophia of Hanover because he was in love with Eleanor. So he proposed that he would never marry, thus he would never have legitimate heirs, and prom- which meant that the bulk of his inheritance would go to his younger brothers. So, oh wait, no, he didn't bulk because he'd met Eleanor. He just bulked because he didn't want to marry Sophia of Hanover. He's just like, not for me. How about if I never marry at all? Which is an interesting and bold choice for him to make. So in 1658, his youngest brother, Ernest Augustus, married Sophia of Hanover instead. And so those pieces are all in place. So we've got George William. His partner is Eleonore and his daughter is Esti. His brother, Ernest Augustus, married Sophia of Hanover and they have a son called George Lewis. So, George Lewis and Esty cousins. So, Esty grew up in a carefree, carefree in a loving environment, unusual for literally every story I've ever told. Like her mother, Eleanor, Esty was attractive and lively. Her parents were, unlike well, my notes, say, unlike many noble and royal couples of that time, but I would say most. Her parents were actually deeply and genuinely in love with each other and gave warmth and affection to their bright and talented daughter which is so nice to hear. Since Eleanor had no official status, she was able to personally raise her daughter, who was very similar to her in personality. Um, Eleanor was able to spend more time with Esty than other upper-class women of her time were able to because Eleanor had no official title. 
because the whole George William never going to marry situation. So Esty, she had no rights as a member of the House of Brunswick, but, but her father still wanted to secure her future, which is understandable because they all loved each other, which is nice. He transferred large assets to her over time, which made her an interesting marriage candidate because she was wealthy and connected to this royal family. So there were various candidates for her hand in marriage, including the Augustus Frederick, the hereditary prince of Brunswick, Wolfenbüttel. And then Estes' status was enhanced even more. In an imperial order of in 1674, so when she was eight years old, in recognition to the military assistance given by her father to the emperor, she and her mother, Eleanor, received the higher title of Countess of Harburg and Wilhelmsburg, with the uh, rights to, to some other lands. At first, her parents agreed to the marriage between Esti and, what was his name, Augustus Frederick, the hereditary prince of Brunswick Wolfenbüttel, because this guy was the child of relatives who had supported George William and Eleanor's relationship from the beginning. So they, they liked that family, thought this would be a good family to connect themselves to. So an official betrothal was signed December 1675. So when Esti was uh, nine years old. Unfortunately, the groom, who was an adult, was mortally wounded at the Siege of Philipsburg in one year later. So after the death of his daughter's fiancé, George William was keen to negotiate an agreement over the inheritance of the Duchy of Lüneburg. He initially approached his younger brother, Ernest Augustus, to arrange a marriage between Esty and Ernest Augustus's oldest son, George Louis. So that's the son of Ernest Augustus and Sophia of Hanover. However, um, Ernest Augustus and Sophia of Hanover both had misgivings about the proposed match because of the circumstances of Esty's birth in the sense of that her parents weren't married. So, after his daughter was rejected by his brother to marry her cousin, George William decided to improve once and for all Estes' status as well as that of Eleanor. So there was a contract signed in 1675, openly violating his previous vow to never marry. George William declared that Eleanor was his lawful wife in both church and state, and they had a, a wedding ceremony on April 2nd, 1676. Ernest Augustus and Sophia of Hanover stayed away from this wedding, and 22 days later, Eleanor was officially addressed at court as the Duchess of Brunswick, and S.D. therefore became legitimate. This development alarmed George William's relatives. Now that S.D. was legitimate, she could potentially, not that she would personally, but just like she as a concept, could threaten the planned union of the Lüneburg territories, which like, I don't know. But she, her being legitimate was a threat to some people because it just was. So in 1680, the Lüneburg royal family recognized Eleanor as Duchess of Brunswick. And then Esty was declared Princess of Brunswick Lüneburg Sella with all appertaining rights of birth. Now that Esty had this pedigree, her cousin's parents, e.g. her aunt and uncle, agreed to the proposed union of George Lewis to Esty. But Esty herself did not want to marry her gross cousin. Eleanor did not want her daughter to marry her daughter's cousin. But George William went ahead with the arrangements for the wedding anyway, because he supported it. One anecdote that has made its way into history books is that um, love letters were once found in Esty's possession. 
So I'm not sure who she's writing love letters to, although I have a theory and I'll tell you in a bit. So she might have been in love with somebody else. Maybe that's why she didn't want to marry her cousin. After the love letters are found, allegedly her parents force her to sleep in their bedroom to keep her from sneaking off with anybody else. So let me see. So she's born in 1660. So she's like 14 at this time of this arranged marriage. Another story is that when she was told she had to marry George Lewis, she said, quote, I will not marry the pig snout, a name by which he was known in Hanover, where he was from, because nobody liked him. And she threw a diamond-studded miniature of him against a wall and swore her parents would have to physically drag her to the altar. So this is big Caroline of Brunswick energy, if you remember season one, episode one of this podcast. And that's part of why I really am fond of the story of Sophia Dorothea, because it really reminds me of that as well. But just this whole, like, that she's a teenager, maybe secretly in love with somebody, that she pitched a fit and refused to get married. Like, she's not pretending to be pregnant to avoid going to a ball, but I feel like she would have done that if she had thought of it. Her cousin, George Lewis, was not an ideal bridegroom anyway. So when he was 16 years old, he impregnated a governess in his parents' household, a matter which caused a minor scandal, which is... I don't know what to say about that. He was 16. I do not know the age of the governess. Was she his governess? I don't know what that situation would be, how consensual or not any of that would have been. Uh, other than that, he was cold, stiff, and not wholly pleasant. He also already had a mistress and was happy in his life as a soldier and didn't want to marry his cousin Esty. And he was also uh, boring. I wrote here even his mother didn't like him. But his mother, who didn't like him, Sophia of Hanover, wanted the financial benefits, e.g. the dowry of marrying her son to Esty, as well as the guarantee that he... George Lewis would be granted his father-in-law's kingdom, so Estes' father's kingdom, upon his death. So the wedding took place between these two teenagers who were cousins and did not want to marry each other. 21st November, 1682. So Estes was 16. George Lewis was 22. From its early days, the marriage was a complete failure. It was an unhappy and tempestuous one. And I think it's interesting, too, that Sophia would have grown up seeing her parents who genuinely were in love with each other and treated each other with warmth and compassion. So she would have had expectations for married life that were not going to be met by her marriage to this guy who seems like a real jerk. So her mother-in-law slash aunt, Sophia of Hanover, was not super thrilled with Esty as daughter-in-law, but Sophia started out the marriage attempting to make Esty feel at home. Ernest Augustus, who is Esty's father-in-law slash uncle, found Esty charming, and her George Lewis's younger brothers all thought her pretty. However, George Lewis treated his bride with coldness and formality. He frequently scolded her for her lack of etiquette, and the two had loud and bitter arguments, which again reminds me of Caroline of Brunswick. So, and also, on top of this, they were first cousins, and so they'd known each other for years and never liked each other, which is probably why, also, they didn't want to marry each other. Marriage did little to help the fact that they did not like each other. Regardless, they had a son named George Augustus, when who was born when Esty was 17. The following year, Ernest Augustus, so again, Esty's father-in-law, uncle, announced to his family that he intended to implement primogeniture to the succession of his estate. And what did this mean? It meant that George Lewis stood to inherit everything, and George Lewis's five younger brothers would not inherit anything 
needless to say, this news, delivered at Christmas, wasn't well received. 1686. Esty joined her in-laws, slash aunt and uncle, for a trip to Venice during Carnival, which then as now, I'm sure it was such a fun time. It was her first visit abroad, like out of Germany. And she was a splashing success, particularly with Italian men who admired her beauty and charm. This did not please George Lewis, who continued to find his wife cousin irritating, but by now she was pregnant with her second child. And so she had two children. The daughter, let's see, so the, the sequence of events. So she's pregnant. I'm going to talk about when she has the daughter in a minute. But so basically... George Lewis, having done his duty by the succession, you know, having had a son and now another baby on the way, he acquired, I don't know if this is the same mistress or if it's a new mistress, but his mistress at this time was called, there's some incredible names in this story, just so you know, Melusine van der Schulenberg. And he, with Melusine's company, he started increasingly to neglect his wife, Asterix, even more than before, apparently. SD discovered this affair while she was pregnant, and she didn't shy away from complaining to her husband that his behavior was unacceptable, because again, she had grown up seeing a display of a genuine loving marriage, and knew what a marriage could be like, and she knew that hers was not what she wanted to settle for. At one point, SD grew so upset that she fell ill and physicians were afraid that she would miscarry. Sophia of Hanover intervened and forced her son to visit his pregnant wife's bedside, where he sat in silence holding her hand. So comforting, I'm sure. The daughter was named Sophia Dorothea, the same name as SD. So she was born in March 1687. SD was 20 at the time. So seeing how upset this whole situation was making, SD, George Lewis's parents asked him to be more circumspect with his mistress. Uh, fearful that a disruption in the marriage would threaten the payment of the money that he was to receive as part of Esty's dowry and inheritance from her father. So they didn't care that the marriage was happy. They just didn't want the marriage to fall apart because they wanted Esty's money, which is gross. So again, having produced two children, George Lewis became, if it was at all possible, even more distant from his wife, spending more time with his dogs and horses and nights with his mistress who's a new mistress, who is the married daughter of his father's mistress. So his father's mistress's daughter, a woman named Sophia Charlotte von Keilmenseg, who is rumored to be George Lewis's half-sister because Sophia Charlotte's mother was sleeping with his father, so could be. Over the next five years, annoyance and indifference gave way to hardened resentment and dislike. Sophia of Hanover continued to try and mediate because she wanted money, and in order to get the money, the marriage had to succeed. So Sophia of Hanover comforted SD that the marriage would eventually make her Queen of Great Britain for reasons that I guess I'll explain right now, which were, I'm trying to remember. So what happened is in Great Britain, there was Mary Queen of Scots' son, James, became king, and then his sons, and then all became kings, and then there kind of just wasn't a son anymore, and then that's when William and Mary became king and queen, and then after them, Anne became queen, who was the one who's in the movie The Favorite, which you might have seen, and remember that she did not have any children, but she did have a lot of rabbits. So with her, well, she had a lot of children, they just all really horribly 
sadly, um, all died. She had no surviving children, Queen Anne the first. So then they had to look at the family tree and be like, who's going to be the next monarch of Great Britain? Asterix, it has to be a Protestant. So then they crossed off all the Catholics from the family tree. And who that left was Sophia of Hanover, Estes aunt by marriage, who was a descendant of James. So at this point, Sophia of Hanover was actually heir to the throne of Great Britain, which meant that her son would be the next king, and her son is George Lewis, and that would mean that Estee would be the queen. So basically, Sophia of Hanover is like, uh, try and be nicer to your husband, who is my son, who we both hate, because one day he'll be king and you can be queen of Great Britain. Estee was like, guess what? That is not reassuring at all. She was too wrapped up in her own unhappiness to care. And why should she? In January 1692, Melusine, one of George Lewis's several mistresses, gave birth to George Lewis's bastard daughter, Anna Louise. And then one year later, she had a second daughter who was named Petronella Melusine. As for SD, there were no further pregnancies or children after her daughter's birth, indicating the couple likely stopped sleeping together, which makes sense as they clearly couldn't stand each other. So when she was about 24 years old, having now been married for eight years, the mother of two young children, SD was reunited with someone she had known in her teen years, the Swedish Count Philip Christoph von Kogismark. He was one year older than her, so age appropriate. And apparently they had hit things off when they were young teens. And that's who I think the love letters were to and or from when her parents found them and made her sleep with them in her room. Now, he's Swedish and apparently super handsome and tall. So I just want us all to picture Alexander Skarsgård because that is the vibe of this guy. So you, you picture SD married to this guy who's just like boring and treats her badly and is awful and his awful parents and then into this situation comes the swedish count philip christoph von kogismark looking all alexander skarsgardy but like nice so sd took an interest in the tall and handsome swedish count the two had previously met in Sella when they were younger teens where he'd worked as a page at the court they had indulged in flirtation and traced their names on the palace windows with the words forget me not but written presumably in german Count Konigsmark was seemed he was very experienced and exciting to be around because he had you know traveled lots and he was worldly and when the couple danced together at a masked ball their friendship was more than rekindled. George Lewis's younger brothers liked the dashing Count Philip and brought him to Estes salon in the evening to cheer her because they saw that he cheered her up. Which is just like, I don't know if they were just fucking with her or if they were just that clueless. But this was great because she got to hang out with a guy who was super hot and liked her. But the thing is that Konigsmark was a dashing, handsome man and the former lover of Estee's father-in-law's mistress. So George Lewis's parents, Sophie of Hanover, I think we all know about her now. And his father was Ernest Augustus. So Ernest Augustus had a mistress who was Countess Elizabeth Clara von Platen. So Countess Elizabeth Clara von Platen had been lovers with Konigsmark before. So Countess Elizabeth was also very jealous. So she watched with jealousy to see if Konigsmark would move on to be with someone new because she liked being his lover, even though she was also the king's lover. 
So Königsmark remained in Hanover for two years, but left to take part in a military expedition to the Peloponnese in 1690, which turned out to be a disaster. It was during this absence that Königsmark and Esti realized that their feelings ran far deeper than just friendship. The letters between the two grew increasingly heated, passionate, and incriminating until, upon his return, they succumbed to their desires. And we know this because the letters, like, literally exist. I'll get into more details. Read the letters in a bit. There are statistics for how many letters they wrote, but it was, like, a lot. So, let's see. They exchanged passionate and lurid love letters. But to ensure secrecy, twice a year, the couple sent their letters to Count Philip's sister so that they wouldn't be found. However, smatterings of them have fallen into the hands of their various descendants, and Esti's son is believed to have had many destroyed. What survives of the letters indicates that they began a physical relationship in March 1692, shortly after the birth of George Lewis's bastard daughter, Anna. Though it's unknown whether Esti knew that that daughter had been born, who cares? She was busy with her hot lover, Alexander Skarsgård. But, Countess Elizabeth, so Count Philip Konigsmark's ex-lover, who's also the lover of Esti's uncle, father-in-law, was... Enraged to see herself usurped by this younger woman, was overcome by jealous fury. So, in 1692, Countess Elizabeth brought these letters to the attention of Esti's father-in-law, Ernest Augustus, who was mad about it and sent Konigsmark to fight with the Hanoverian army against Louis XIV in France, I guess. So Konigsmark was banished from the Hanoverian court, but soon found a position in the neighboring court of Saxony, where one night he was... When he was drinking, he let slip the state of affairs in the royal bedchamber of the House of Hanover, e.g. that he was sleeping with Esti. And then this confession, somebody heard it, somebody told somebody else, and then George Lewis learned what was up, and he was mad about it. Even though you know he was sleeping with however many people, like, let her live, George Lewis, honestly. So everybody was hearing about this. And then people warned Esti that she really should stop having this affair, Sophie of Hanover... Her mother, Eleanor, and her sister-in-law all repeatedly warned her to put a stop to it. Um, so, and they did this potentially with some pity because they knew how bad her marriage was, but they also knew that this was just going to not end well for her. But SD could not be restrained. She bowed out of family occasions to make frequent visits to Sela, where she had more freedom of movement and she could be with her hot Swedish lover. By 1694, rumors filled the court that... SD and Count von Konigsmark were having a love affair, so everybody knew. So when his affair with SD threatened to become even more widely known, although I feel like it is, like, about as widely known as it could be, Count Philip handed their love letters to his brother-in-law, the Swedish Count Carl Gustav von Lowenhaupt. It was his heirs who later offered the correspondence to the House of Hanover for money, e.g. blackmailing them? but they demanded such a high price that he rebuffed them and questioned the authenticity of the letters. The correspondence between SD and Count Philip was published in the middle of the 19th century, and the majority of the letters are now in the possession of Lund University in Sweden. A few of the letters ended up in the possession of SD's grandson, King Frederick the Great of Prussia, after his sister, Swedish queen consort Louisa Ulrika, allegedly stole them and sent them to him. I love this journey of these sexy letters. Frankly does make for a good book. Today, the authenticity of the letters have been established beyond any doubt. The lovers rarely dated their letters, but they numbered them. The 
Historian Georg Schnaff calculated on the basis of the existing correspondence that there must have been originally about 660 letters. And this is like their affair was going on for not like 12 years. It was just like a couple years. About 340 letters written by Count Philip and about 320 letters written by Esty. The missing letters seem to have been confiscated and destroyed by the Hanoverian authorities after the affair became public. State archives in Hanover provide scant information about these critical years of sexy letter writing. Even the correspondence between Sophia of Hanover and her niece Elizabeth, which might have shed some light on the events based on them, what they were talking about, were censored afterwards. So, quite a scandal, lots of unknown little bits. And then, one evening in 1694, S.D. went out walking in the gardens with her ladies-in-waiting. They encountered a small, newly-built building on the grounds that they had never seen, and S.D., being a curious person, insisted on entering. And when they entered, she came face-to-face with her husband and his mistress reclining on a sofa with their infant daughter sleeping in a cradle. A furious fight broke out. So George Lewis screamed at her about her affair with Count Philip, and she reacted by pointing out his own affair and baby that he was having. They had a physical altercation. George threw himself at Esty and started tearing out her hair and strangling her, leaving purple bruise marks on her neck. Her attendants managed to pull him off her. Um, Esty did not get the support of her in-laws slash and an uncle, Sophia of Hanover and Ernest Augustus, She's told by them kindly but firmly she should turn a blind eye to her husband's indiscretions and keep her hands clean. Like, e.g. stop having an affair and just, like, suck it up. And worst advice. Terrible. She needs more support. So you know who she needs to talk to is her own parents, member of the loving marriage. So that's where she went. She traveled to see her parents in Sella to persuade them to support an official separation from her husband. But her parents, George William and Eleanor, opposed this, probably for financial reasons. Yes, this is partially because Esty's father was waging war, was dependent on the help of his brother, and so he couldn't break up this marriage. The marriage was needed for, like, financing for his war or whatever. So she was sent back to hell, a.k.a. the Royal Hanover Court. So Esty, as you might understand, like, unable to reconcile herself to, like, being in this loveless marriage with this horrible man who treated her terribly, she began to plan make plans to run away with sexy Swedish Count Philip. All of her dowry and personal fortune was held by her husband, thanks to the terms of her marriage contract, So, meaning she had no money at her disposal. So she began petitioning her parents for a private side income. Unfortunately, they were in no financial situation to do so. Waiting for all of this to sort itself out, Esty refused to sleep under the same roof as her husband and begged for her own household. So George Lewis was preparing to make a long, a lengthy trip to visit his sister in Berlin. He agreed there was no saving the marriage and promised to ask his father for a formal separation once he returned. And then that summer, S.D., together with Count Philip and her lady-in-waiting Eleanor von dem Knieseback, planned their escape, hoping to find refuge either in Wolfenbüttel under the protection of Duke Anthony. That's the person who she was almost going to marry, originally originally and then he died in the war remember this was the family who supported her parents sexy secret marriage so maybe she thought that they would support her now as well if they were just like fans of love they also thought maybe they could go to the electorate of saxony where count philip held an officer position as major general of the cavalry but their plan was discovered so 
on the night of July 1st, 1694, Count Philip was seen entering Estes apartments. Legend has it, he had received a note to meet her at an appointed time. However, this note wasn't from SD, but it was a forgery. And do you know who it was from? Countess Elizabeth, the woman who had been Count Philip's lover before, who was jealous of him, who is now the lover of the king, who is SD's father-in-law slash uncle. So Countess Elizabeth has her revenge for being usurped as the lover of sexy Swedish Count Philip. So upon entering the apartments, Count Philip told SD there was a carriage waiting to take them to Wolfenbüttel, but she asked him to wait 24 hours so that she could say goodbye to her children. So after this meeting, Count Philip disappeared without a trace. What happened is that Countess Elizabeth and her evil allies were monitoring the movements of the couple from nearby. So when they saw Count Philip enter, she went to Ernest Augustus and told him she could catch the lovers and put an end to the affair altogether. He agreed, and she returned to her post, ordering all the exits from Estes' apartments locked. When Count Philip tried to leave, he found himself blocked and figured out what had happened. He had been bamboozled. Um, Countess Elizabeth and her comrades entered the apartments and murdered him. However, I mean, allegedly, allegedly. However, realizing that Ernest Augustus hadn't authorized his death, she was forced to explain what happened to him in a panic. Realizing he was also implicated, Ernest Augustus ordered that the body be thrown into the palace latrines, covered in quicklime, and hidden with a brick wall built overnight. So, that's like, that's what might have happened. Okay, for sure, Count Philip was murdered. By who and where did his body go is what we don't know. So others believe the body was weighted and thrown into a river. He just disappeared. Body never found. Countess Elizabeth was exonerated from any involvement in the death by the deathbed confessions of two of her henchmen. So two of her henchmen on the deathbed said, like, it wasn't her who killed him or did all the scheming, but, like, can we trust them? I don't know. So his death, the death of Count Philip von Konigsmark, remains one of history's unsolved mysteries. While this was all happening, though, SD didn't know what was going on. Apparently the walls were so thick she didn't hear the attack from the other side of her apartments. She was met the next morning and told that she had been ordered to be confined to her apartments, and she didn't know why. Count Philip was simply believed missing. When a formal inquiry was requested, it was eventually dropped, and the official party line was that he had clearly disappeared of his own free will. Despite this, foul play was widely suspected. Count Philip's disappearance turned into a diplomatic affair, when not only relatives and the Hanoverian population, but foreign diplomats and their governments began to puzzle over it. King Louis XIV of France questioned his sister-in-law, Elizabeth Charlotte, who is the maternal first cousin of George Louis, but she pretended ignorance. The French king then sent agents to Hanover, but they could no more shed light on the mystery than, the ki than King Augustus II of Poland, who spent weeks searching for his missing general. So I feel like this is why maybe some of those letters were redacted, because maybe people were writing about it, and maybe the royal family was involved in the murder, but they couldn't let that be known. In retaliation, Ernest Augustus and his brother, George William, Estes' father, turned to Emperor Leopold I with a formal complaint against the King of Poland. Oh, because the King of Poland was spending weeks searching for the missing general. Um, so they said if the Polish king wasn't stopped from carrying out his investigation, they would withdraw their troops from the Grand Alliance in the war against France. So, let's see. But the Polish king did not back down. Um, 
Oh, and then he even faced down Count Van Platen, who was the husband of Countess Elizabeth, telling him that Count Philip had either been captured or killed on the orders of his wife, out of jealousy. Meanwhile, Ernest Augustus and George William, brothers, brothers-in-law, got to work on the formal separation of George, Louis, and S.D. Without referencing her infidelity, they instead used the reason that she refused to live under the same roof as her husband as grounds for the dissolution of the marriage. She was removed from Hanover to Alden within Sella. If anyone asked about her, the official answer was that she had been apprehended fleeing and had thrown herself at her parents' mercy. The whole situation with Count Philip had been kind of sorted in the sense of him being murdered and disappeared. But this was not enough for George Lewis, who felt like he had been, you know, humiliated with his wife's affair in the eyes of everybody. He demanded a legal separation from his wife, setting her as sole culprit on grounds of desertion. So he banned her from his house and then said that she deserted him. So awful. In addition to divorce proceedings, he had SD imprisoned and transferred to Lauenau Castle and placed under house arrest. That December, remember the murder was like July, so that December, the dissolution of their marriage was officially pronounced. So SD was named the guilty party for, quote, maliciously leaving her husband. Throughout the divorce proceedings, SD maintained her innocence, which eventually found her guilty and her husband innocent. Her father and father-in-law worked at an agreement which let George Lewis keep her dowry for their children deprived her visitation with the children, and kept her strictly confined to Alden Castle. So her father just did not stand up for her at all. She was not told any of this. On December 28th, when the marriage was legally dissolved, she said goodbye to her children, not knowing that she would literally never see them again. She was moved to Alden, believing that she would eventually be allowed to visit her parents or be granted more freedom of movement. But, in fact, so she was just 28 at this point. So she is forbidden to remarry or to see her children again. Official documents removed her name. She stripped of her title of electoral princess and churches in Hanover were no longer to mention her name in prayers. After the divorce, George Lewis sent her to, let's see. Oh, no, we know this. So she was sent to Alden House, a stately home on the Lüneburg Heath, which served as a prison appropriate to her status. Although the divorce judgment said nothing about continued imprisonment, she was never to regain her freedom. Spoiler. It wasn't until several weeks or months later that it slowly dawned on her what was going on and what had happened. Like, she didn't realize at first that she was literally a prisoner. Her mother was the only visitor permitted to see her, and correspondence with her two children was forbidden. Her mother, Eleanor, attempted to improve Estes' condition, like how she was being kept, but her efforts which included negotiations with both Louis XIV and William III, did not succeed. Her father refused to see her. George Lewis, her awful husband, was free to remarry as the, quote, innocent party in their divorce. He never remarried. Um, He forbade their children from seeing her. There are stories of her son, George Augustus, trying to break into Alden to see his mother, but these might be made up. What isn't made up is the treatment that of Esty deeply soured the children's opinion of their father. I mean, spoiler, Esty's ex-husband, George Lewis, would go on to become George I of Great Britain, and he was the first in the line of four kings of Great Britain, all named George, each of whom truly hated their father for understandable reasons. 
So George Augustus, SD's son, hated his father forever, largely because of what he did to the mother. So George Lewis confiscated the assets SD had brought to the marriage and allocated her an annual maintenance. Let's see. She was detained in the north wing of the castle, a two-story half-timbered building guarded 24 hours a day by, f- by 40 men, five to ten of whom were on duty at any one time. So they really thought she was going to make a run for it. Her mail and visits were strictly controlled, though her mother had unlimited visiting rights. As far as history historians know, she never attempted to escape. I hope, like Queen Margot, she had books to read or something, something to do. Initially, she was only allowed to walk unaccompanied inside the mansion courtyard. Later, she was permitted under guard to walk in the outdoor facilities. After two years in prison, she could take supervised trips two kilometers outside the castle walls. Her stay in Alden was interrupted several times due to war or renovation work on the residence. During these times, she's transferred to Sella Castle or to Essel. Her court included two ladies-in-waiting, several chambermaids, and other household and kitchen staff who had all been selected for the loyalty to her ex-husband. But also, frankly, she can't leave and she's in prison, but she doesn't have to be with her husband. So, could be worse? Although she can't see her children, so that's sad. Uh, Esty became known as the Princess of Alden, which was not an actual title, but she was a princess, or an ex-princess, and she was trapped in Alden Castle. So, named after that. Her place of residence... At first, apparently, she was ex- she was resigned to her fate and just didn't try to didn't try to convince anyone to let her out. In later years, she tried to obtain her release. When her father-in-law, Ernest Augustus, died, she sent a letter of condolence to her former husband George Lewis, assuring him that she prayed for him every day and begged him on her knees to forgive her mistakes. She will be eternally grateful to him if he allows her to see her two children, who at that point she hadn't seen in like thirty years. She also wrote a letter of condolence to Sophie of Hanover, claiming she wanted nothing more than to kiss your hands before I die. But George Lewis never forgave her, nor did his mother. From April till September of 1700, George Lewis allowed Esty to live at Sella in the face of a French invasion of the Brunswick duchies. Once that threat subsided, George William sent her back to imprisonment. When Esty's father was on his deathbed in 1705, he wanted to see his daughter one last time to reconcile with her, but his prime minister, Count Bernstorff, objected and claimed that a meeting would lead to diplomatic problems. George William no longer had the strength to assert himself and died without seeing her again. In 1714, her ex-husband George Lewis became George I, King of Great Britain, who was not a good or very interesting King of Great Britain in the sense of he stayed in Germany and never learned how to speak English. Esty is remembered for a significant act of charity during her imprisonment. So after a devastating local fire in Alden in 1715, she contributed considerable sums of money towards the town's reconstruction. Her mother, Eleanor, died in 1722, leaving Esty alone, because remember, that's the only visitor she was ever allowed to have, surrounded only by enemies. Her daughter, also called Sophia Dorothea, and who later became the Queen of Prussia, traveled to Hanover in 1725 to see her father, George I, a.k.a. George Lewis. S.D. dressed even more carefully than usual, waiting in vain every day at the window, hoping that her daughter would come by and visit, but she did not. In the end, and what could be more relatable, 
SD seems to have found comfort in eating. So she grew overweight due to lack of exercise and was frequently plagued by colds and indigestion. In early 1726, she suffered a stroke. In August of that year, she went to bed with colic and never rose again, refusing all food and treatment. And here we have like a Arbella scenario slash Catherine Gray scenario of just like losing the will to live. Within a few weeks, she grew emaciated. SD died shortly before midnight on November 13th, 1726, age 60. She had spent the final 32 years of her life imprisoned, not able to see her children. On her deathbed, she wrote a letter to her ex-husband, George Lewis, denouncing him for his incessant cruelty and cursing him from beyond the grave. Hell yes. Her autopsy revealed a liver failure and gallbladder occlusion. Her former husband, aka King George I, placed an announcement in the London Gazette saying that the Duchess of Alden had died, but he forbade mourning. He was furious when he heard that his daughter's court in Berlin wore black. Her funeral turned into a farce. Because the guards in Alden Castle had no instructions, they placed her remains in a lead coffin and deposited them in the cellar. In January, the order came from London to bury her without any ceremonies in the cemetery of Alden, which was impossible due to weeks of heavy rain. So the coffin was brought back to the cellar and covered in sand. It wasn't until May 1727, so that was January, so that May, that SD was buried secretly and at night beside her parents in the Stadkirch in Sella. Her ex-husband, King George I, died four weeks later while visiting Hanover, and I hope he... That was the result of her curse. I like to think it was. Esty's parents seem to have believed that their daughter would one day be released from prison. So shortly before her father died, he and his wife Eleanor drew up a joint will, according to which their daughter would receive the estates of Alden, Retham, and Walsh Road, extensive estates in France and Sella, the great fortune of her father, and the legendary jewelry collection of her mother. Her father appointed Count Heinrich Sigismund von Barr as administrator of Estes' fortune. Twelve years older than the princess and a handsome, highly educated, and sensitive gentleman, Count von Barr and Esti shared old ties of affection. Esti named him one of the main beneficiaries of her will, but, also, but he died six years before her, so he didn't inherit from her. Esti had inherited her mother's property. Uh, let's see upon Eleanor's death and left it in her will to her children, but George Lewis destroyed that will, this asshole, and appropriated the property for himself. SD was remembered fondly by her children, who didn't see her for the final 32 years of her life. The lady-in-waiting who had helped her with her escape, Eleanor von dem Knieseback, who was also a close confidant to SD, was imprisoned after for her role in the attempted escape. After two years of solitary confinement, she managed to escape and was able to flee to Wolfenbüttel under the protection of Duke Anthony Ulrich. Again, the one who like had supported Esty's parents' love and was just like helpful in various ways. Eleanor, this Eleanor, the confidant, left a unique document in the room of the tower where she was confined. All the walls and doors were written down to the last corner with charcoal and chalk. The texts, sacred poems in the style of contemporary church hymns, were accusations against her enemies at court and memoir-like prose pieces. All these were recorded for the Hanover Archive files. Until her death, Eleanor denied the adulterous relationship between Esty and Count Philip. The French adventurer Marquis Armand de Lassay 
later claimed in his memoirs that he had received no fewer than 13 love letters from SD, but never showed any documents to anyone. So SD, Sophia Dorothea of Sella, was considered the uncrowned queen of Great Britain, and her tragic fate fascinated the imaginations of her contemporaries and those later on. In 1804, Friedrich von Schiller planned a tragedy dedicated to her called The Princess of Sella, but he never completed it. Esty's great-granddaughter, Caroline Matilda of Great Britain, Queen Consort of Denmark and Norway, shared her same fate. After the Struensee affair in 1772, Caroline Matilda was divorced from her husband, separated from her children, and sent to Sella Castle, where she died three years later. In the crypts of the Stadkirch St. Marion, both women are united in death. Esty's affair and its tragic outcome is the basis of a 1948 British film, Sarah Band for Dead Lovers, where she was portrayed by Joan Greenwood. And that is the saga of SD, a.k.a. Sophia Dorothea of Sella, which is truly the muse for this, for this season. Again, it ends with a 32-year imprisonment, which is tragique, although I do appreciate the fact that she cursed her husband and... He died shortly after her. He was, oh, what a monster. George I. Remind me to do a mini episode about him. So it's time to score Sophia Dorothea of Sella. Re-scandaliciousness. Now, as for several other women this season, I think there was not a whole bunch of scandaliciousness, but the, what there was was pretty intense. What was it? She wrote like 320 sexy, passionate lovers to her secret lover, the Swedish Count Philip. And then even just the, the scandaliciousness of like her husband was having affairs and babies and she caught them, then he strangled her. Like it's all just like messy, like real housewives of Sella level. I'm going to give her a nine for scandaliciousness because it truly was. Her scheminess, I feel like the scheminess to get away with this affair for so long is impressive. Um, she had the scheme to run away, but she was thwarted. I feel like Countess Elizabeth would get a 10 for scheminess. Sophia Dorothea. And then it's like, did she try to escape? Like, maybe, but it, I don't know. It seems like she didn't. I'm just going to give her six for scheminess. Significance. This is interesting because she is, in fact, the mother of George II of England. And then that was a whole Hanoverian dynasty that wound up with Queen Victoria and stuff. So, and the fact that her treatment made her son hate her husband and then that affected how he was king and stuff. I'm going to give her a six for significance because I feel like as much as her gross husband wanted to erase her existence from everything, like she was actually quite significant in those ways. And then also significance of she helped after there was a fire. She did that great um, act of charity as well. Sexism bonus. I feel like she gets like more than a 10 for sexism bonus. Like if everyone who get has ever gotten the sexism bonus, like the fact that they both had affairs, but then she was found the guilty party for leaving him after he tried to like strangle her to death. And then the fact that she couldn't remarry, but he could, and she just kept in a tower and he just went off to be the king is just like, that's some fucked up shit. So what does this add up to? That's a 31 which so in terms of this season so queen margot is the all-time highest score 
ever with a 37.5, but this is the second highest of the season. So Queen Margot, 37.5. SD, Sophia Dorothy of Sella, 31. Margaret Douglas, 28. Arbella Stewart, 28. Margaret Pohl, 27. Isabel of Portugal, 27. Margaret of Anjou, 26. This is wild. I mean, you realize that my scoring is wildly inconsistent. Like, Margaret of Anjou is only 26. I forget how that happened. Anyway, I am happy that SD is this high because I find her story so interesting and so heartbreaking and so romantic and also the unsolved mysteries of it all. Like, it's got... It's got a little bit of everything. And that's where, as soon as I read it, and thank you to the person on Instagram who suggested it, who I couldn't find the messages, but please tell me who you are so I can thank you properly, who suggested it because I'd never, ever, 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 ever heard of her. And I didn't realize that there's this whole fascinating story going on. And again, you can get all the juicy gossip in the biography by Catherine Curzon, The Imprisoned Princess, The Scandalous Life of Sophia Dorothea of Sella. This book like literally just came out, like it was published in 2021, I believe. And, and that's this episode. So what I have to recommend to you today, now, this is sort of a preemptive recommendation in the sense of I just got this book and I have not yet read it, but I got it because it sounds amazing and truly like it's filling in a gap in my historical reading and just in like historical writing in general. So this is the book, African Europeans and Untold History by Olivette Otelli. I'll just read a little bit. So, as early as the 3rd century, St. Maurice, an Egyptian, became leader of the legendary Roman Theban Legion. Ever since, there have been richly varied encounters between those defined as Africans and those called Europeans. Yet Africans and African Europeans are still widely believed to be only a recent presence in Europe. Olivet Otelli traces a long African-European heritage through the lives of individuals both ordinary and extraordinary. She uncovers a forgotten past from Emperor Septimius Severus to enslaved Africans living in Europe during the Renaissance and all the way to present-day migrants moving to Europe's cities. By exploring a history that has been long overlooked, she sheds light on questions very much alive today on racism, identity, citizenship, power, and resilience. African-Europeans is a landmark account of a crucial thread in Europe's complex history. And so the author, Olivet Otelli, is a professor of history and memory of enslavement at the University of Bristol and vice president of the Royal Historical Society. She's the first black woman to be appointed to a professional professorial chair in history in the UK, and her writing has appeared in The Guardian, BBC Extra, and Times Higher Education. So I'm super excited to read this book. Beyond excited. I can't wait to read it, and that's why I'm recommending it to you. It was just, just, just published. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And here's where I would have said that's the final episode of this season because up until a couple days ago, I was planning on SD being the grand finale. But here's what happened. I found out about one other person whose story fits in this theme perfectly who is incredibly scandalous. And so I'm going to have one more episode next week. It's going to be more of a mini episode because I couldn't find as much information about her as could fill an hour-long podcast, but I've got some information, and so there's going to be one more bonus episode next week. You can stay in touch with me and this podcast in the various ways by which now you're all, I'm sure, super familiar um, on Instagram at Vulgar History Pod, where I 
love getting feedback and suggestions and maybe I'll do a podcast based on something you suggest one day. So that's where you can leave suggestions. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Vulgar History. My Patreon is still going. I can't imagine that there's not going to be a George Lewis episode of So This Asshole coming up shortly because, ooh, yeah, I just feel like he's my new nemesis. Frankly, it's fucking guy. Anyway, so on patreon.com slash Writer, if you make a monthly, monthly pledge there, the money goes towards me and this podcast and hopefully doing many more seasons of it coming up. But in the meantime, as a thank you for your pledges, I have at least one mini episode per month called So This Asshole, where I talk about various assholes in history generally so that's a patreon.com slash and foster writer um let's see there's some oh in the merch store i had a sudden burst of inspiration where i was just like i really want to do a shirt that says mask on tits out but then i was like that's like a pretty bold statement to have on a shirt which is fine and everything in my merch store is a very bold statement frankly but then I thought, ooh, because of my inability to say French words, not like Jerry Orbach as Lumiere in Beauty and the Beast, I translated it, mask on, tits out. So in French, that's masque sur, saint dehors. I mean, that's what Google Translate said it was. To an actual French person, it's probably something even classier, but I think it's funny to just be a direct translation. So I have some new masque sur, saint dehors french slogan t-shirts and stuff in the store which is at vulgarhistory.creator-spring.com and the link to that is in the show notes as well and oh yeah and then if you go to um my shop on bookshop.org that's where i list all the books i've mentioned each season of this podcast and when you buy books through there if you like buying books online that's the way that the money goes towards independent bookstores which are a incredibly important thing to support so that's bookshop.org slash shop slash vulgar history and i'm ann foster this is the vulgar history podcast there's going to be one more episode next week for this season so keep your mask on and your tits out Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.